to Rocktail Hour, an hour's worth of rocking good time in about 15 minutes with Tim and Treg and Michael. Three old dudes living in the past and a testament to the fact that rock and roll keeps you young. want to thank all of you Rocktail fans for checking us out on Facebook and checking us out on our website. It's been great some of the responses that we've had and want to tell you how much we appreciate you. Today, Michael is going to tell us the story behind the Pink Floyd classic, Comfortably Numb. So I'm going to turn the time over to Michael. Thanks, Tim. It's really impossible to talk about the song Comfortably Numb without talking about the album that it comes from, obviously, The Wall. Which is one of the greatest albums of all time. I'd, I'd put it in the top five, easily. Easy. Maybe top two? Yeah. <laughs> right behind Thriller. Yeah. <laughs> If you don't agree that it's one of the greatest albums of all time, uh, most people would agree that it's certainly one of the more interesting ones. It defines the idea of a concept album. The Wall, it's a story about uh, the protagonist, Pink, whose father's killed in World War II and the effects that that has on Pink's life. Uh, from an overprotective mother who's left with nothing but her son and the manner through which she suffocates him through the educational system and all these events result in Pink wanting to withdraw from society and building a wall between himself and society, hence uh, the, the title of the album. The wall really represents the feeling of alienation that uh, Pink feels uh, with, uh, between himself and society. And Comfortably Numb is one of the key songs on that album because it describes Pink's coping mechanism for dealing with that alienation, which, as we know from the movie, is uh, kind of this profound uh, drug abuse that really leads them into a comatose state. But the song, uh, the genesis of the song, is really about Roger Waters' drug use, is it? That's right. And, you know, the story behind the song, Comfortably Numb, is that its genesis is that um, in 1977 on Pink Floyd's In the Flesh tour, uh, Roger Waters was suffering from these debilitating stomach cramps uh, that were keeping him from even taking the stage. And so a doctor injected him with a tranquilizer to be able to calm him enough to be able to, to take the stage that night. Uh, you know, I think that Roger Waters, you know, we know from the album Animals uh, that had a, Roger Waters had a real antipathy towards the managers and the money bags behind uh, the rock industry that were forcing him in, in a quite literal way to take the stage, you know, even when it wasn't something that was good for his health. Uh, Waters had a, an obviously strong contempt for the people who were trying to make him do that. So that's really kind of the idea uh, for where the song came from, was that his own experience of being forced to take the stage, uh, suffering from, from health ills. It's an interesting part of the music industry that these people are surrounded by people that know the business side of, of art, but not necessarily the personal side. And they certainly push performers into a scenario where they can make more money, they can do the things that their management wants them to do, but they're definitely not in the best interest of the artist. And, and you see that all the time. Uh, and then you have the whole uh, angst, if you will, that these artists have about trying to fulfill their art commercially when they really like to focus more on, on, on the things that are important to them. And, uh, there's an interesting story, as I was doing a little bit of research on, on a Bruce Springsteen song that we're going to do in a future podcast, that he doesn't consider his Born, to, Born in the USA album to be his very best work, and yet commercially and, and critically, I think it's recognized as his very best work. And it always sort of chagrins him that this was his most popular album when he can point to some other work that he likes a, a great deal more. But 
without that commercial success, he wouldn't have been able to to go on and do some of the other things that, that he wanted to do. The other day I was uh, watching the uh, documentary about Bruce Springsteen and the darkness on the edge of town CD. And he talks a lot in this documentary about his former manager who had some control over, uh, over his music and they got into a dispute. The manager wouldn't let Bruce Springsteen record any music unless Springsteen used a uh, producer approved by the manager. And this was right after uh, Bruce had a huge hit with Born to Run and he was on a roll and he could have followed it up with another great album but the guy that he was in litigation with wouldn't let him record anything. So Bruce Springsteen said, forget you, I'm just not going to record anything. And he went for a couple of years without recording any music, uh, at least f available for commercial distribution. And, and then while, while he was in litigation with the um, former manager, he didn't want some, someone else controlling his creative expression and his artistic abilities. Yeah, well, the, the rock and roll dream, uh, obviously, is, is to have lots of money and, and to be famous. But I think underlying, uh, my guess would be that as an artist, you would want people to accept your work and, and the popularity that you get from that is, is from the acceptance of your work. So it is a sort of a perpetuating cycle of frustration, I would, I would imagine, because you are struggling to try to be successful commercially, but still try to stay true to the art that you had within you. Bringing it back to Roger Waters and the wall, I, I, to pick up on Tim's point, clearly for Waters, it was a little bit of careful what you wish for. Uh, Waters was uh, very driven to succeed commercially, uh, but that success uh, was really then became something that caused a, a, an enormous amount of dissatisfaction in his life. In fact, the, the idea for The Wall uh, as a concept album uh, arose from an experience that Waters had where he spit in the face of a fan at, 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 during a, a rock tour in 1977. Wow. Nice. Apparently, apparently a fan, you know, as rock fans uh, are, are, are known to do sometime, came up and got in his face and was a little over-exuberant. And Waters being disgusted with this, uh, you know, the godlike status that fans bestow upon their rock heroes just spit in the guy's face. Uh, it caused Roger Waters, a reflective person, to reflect on what he had done, and, and I think what he what he recognized was that there was this sense of alienation between himself uh, and his audience that was growing, uh, that was a direct result of the commercial success that he had, that he had striven, uh, strove for, striven for, <laughs> strived. That he strived. Isn't that the past tense? Strived. Yeah, but aren't we in the past participle? <laughs> so, rock tail hour now goes grammar. <laughs> Welcome to grammar hour. <laughs> yeah. Trey and I had an opportunity to see uh, Waters perform the wall in uh, what the, the winter of 2010. And uh, there was a touching moment at the end of, of the tour of the concert where Waters took the stage and essentially confessed to the audience that, you know, when I first wrote this album and toured it, back in you know, roughly 1980, uh, I didn't like you, meaning I didn't like my audience, uh, but, uh, and I was a sick person, but things have changed for me, and now uh, I love you. It was a very touching moment in the, uh, in the tour. It was great. <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking, of course he loved you. You fools just pay 250 bucks a piece. <laughs> <laughs> he really loves us now. <laughs> That's right. You're all successful enough that I can really break you over the cold for a ticket. Tim, you sound jaded. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I would gladly pay that amount if they, 
it, to see them as well. I just haven't ever been close enough for me to go see. Well, being jaded about waters is probably a healthy emotion because after all, this <laughs> is, we're talking about the wall here and this uh, must be the ultimate flipping the bird to your audience to uh, have a concert tour in which the essential theme is that brick by brick, the wall is constructed between the band and the audience so that by the roughly the end of the concert, the band is totally behind the wall, shut off from its audience. The audience who's now paid 250 bucks to yeah. see Waters can't see him at all. Uh, to, to, to be able to draw in an audience like that uh, under those circumstances is pretty outrageous. Yeah. It was a fantastic show. I, I gotta tell you, it was probably the, the greatest show that I've ever seen of any concert or Broadway show or anything. It was a spectacle. Uh, you know, I've always been a fan of Pink Floyd. And I remember going in 1982 to a midnight showing of Pink Floyd's The Wall. And I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't have any idea what, what the movie was going to be about or be like. Uh, you know, you, you walked away trying to figure out, what have I just seen? I think you touched him upon a, one of the real kind of keys to this work of art. The, the film is really the third leg holding up this stool. We've got the film... We've got the concert tour, which is really a stage show, and, and then the album. The film adds a lot to the interpretation of, of both the album and the song Comfortably Numb. In fact, in the, in the film, Comfortably Numb begins with uh, this really beautifully directed scene in which Gal Geldof is sitting in his chair, Alan Parker's direction, the camera kind of rotates around in front of him, and then there's this close-up on Geldof's cigarette just burning in his hand with uh, the, the ash just growing and growing. And, and Geldof, who is playing Pink, of course, uh, in this comatose state that is apparently brought on by uh, some significant drug use. Uh, it's at this point where the film harkens back to the genesis of this song, where, as we spoke before, Roger, Roger Waters was injected with a tranquilizer uh, because the doctor gives him a shot uh, in order to get him up out of the chair so that he could take the stage. There was then this very disturbing uh, scene in which they get Pink out of the chair and start leading him down the hall so that he can take the stage. Uh, there, in the film version, there's this very disturbing scene of Pink who looks to be forming this uh, cocoon-like uh, substance over his skin. Interesting story behind uh, this scene itself is that uh, it is apparently uh, a shout out to Sid Barrett. Uh, Sid Barrett, the, the original frontman of Pink Floyd, who was uh, himself well known for his drug use. Uh, apparently, Sid uh, was uh, fond of taking the stage uh, and in order to keep a, a steady stream of, of drugs uh, flowing into his body, he would rub quaaludes into his hair cream and then <laughs> rub it into his hair. Uh, and so that when the lights, the heat from the lights, uh, while he's standing on stage, would slowly melt the, uh, the quaaludes that were in his hair cream and uh, drip into his skin. And I, and I just like to interject here, we always put some kind of a disclaimer in our podcast, but don't put quaaludes in your hair cream at home, in any of your hair products for that matter. <laughs> so uh, apparently Ro Roger Waters uh, said that, that Sid, uh, once this hair cream would melt down his face, uh, it would make him look like a candle. Uh, like a burnt candle or a guttered candle in, in Roger Waters' words. Uh, and so that's where the whole idea behind being uh, dragged out to the stage with this uh, skin, fleshy cocoon uh, falling over your body. 
after Pink is led down the hall, he actually takes the stage or emer uh, emerging out of this cocoon. And the fascinating thing about Pink becoming a fascist uh, in the film uh, is that it was the fascists that were essentially the first event in his life uh, that led him to where he is at the moment that he becomes a fascist. Because it's, it's the fascists who start World War II uh, that results in his father being killed, that results in the overprotected mother, uh, and all the, the, the next events in his life that fall like dominoes that create this wall of alienation. The circle of life. Also, don't lose sight of the guitar work in that song. Uh, David Gilmore has a great solo. Yeah, oh, it's beautiful. And as we were preparing the research for this song, I noticed that there was only two or three Pink Floyd songs where Gilmore's and, uh, Gilmore and Rogers actually share a writing credit. You know, my only criticism of Pink Floyd in general is the fact that I don't think Waters ever let any of the other band members collaborate to the level that he could have. And I often wonder, you know, as good as The Wall was, could could it have been even better with their contributions? And, you know, maybe the other members didn't. I, I know that Gilmore, kind of like kind of like George Harrison a, a little bit, was always given a little bit to do, but um, not much by way of collaboration. At least it didn't seem to me. That was my perception. And to me... Uh, Gilmore was the genius in the band. Um, uh, musically, he was a genius. Vocally, he far surpassed um, the, the vocal abilities of, of Roger Waters. And that's not a criticism overall of Waters because I think he's a genius and, and his his ability to, to come up with this concept album just blows my mind still. But that would be my only criticism. I, I really liked Pink Floyd. I liked David Gilmore. I didn't feel like I ever got enough. Tim, I think a lot of people would agree with you. Uh, Roger Waters has been widely criticized uh, for uh, his domineering personality and his, his uh, unwillingness to allow other uh, members of the band to really kind of take their, their rightful place in, in that group. Uh, it, in fact, I think the, the general story is that Pink Floyd ultimately broke up because of, of Roger Waters' uh, domination of the band. That The Wall has been described uh, as a, essentially by Gilmore as a Roger Waters solo album. Probably bears mentioning uh, how The Wall ends. Uh, Pink is forced to stand trial, and the judgment that is levied upon him uh, is to tear down the wall and be exposed before his peers. So the, the, the sense of alienation and the wall that he has constructed to insulate him from that, uh, his ultimate fate is to tear down that wall and be exposed to society. It's a painful part of the movie, and it doesn't give a very hopeful resolution overall. You'd think there'd be some kind of um, cathartic moments once the wall was torn down, but and that you'd leave with some hope, but the movie was a little depressing. True to water's form. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, any more on that subject, Michael, or do you think we've talked I, about that song? Yeah, I think we beat this horse into the crown. All righty. <laughs> well, we appreciate you listening. Uh, don't know if you heard the blower in the background. Uh, we are up here in the rock room, which is basically the TV room of Treg's house, and his neighbor is out blowing leaves off of the driveway. So <laughs> if, you, if you heard that, then great. Give you a little bit of flavor for what we're trying to accomplish here and how we're going about it. If you'd like to make a big donation to put us into a studio, we would welcome that. Yeah, we welcome any sponsors at this point. But we appreciate your listenership. Uh, again, we appreciate all of you that have joined us on Facebook, uh, been out to our website. If you haven't had a chance, please like our page on Facebook. That way you can get up-to-date information from us. You can also join us on Twitter as well. We appreciate the fact that you're out there listening to us, and rock on. Rock on.